0: From our academic audiences and people or, and researchers, uh, your main method in the book is kind of an ethnography where you have spoken to a lot of uh, uh, techies and you know we uh, call them quasi-digital consultants to campaigners and all of that, which is really interesting. Um, based on your ethnographic account, would you like to give some insight on methods for people who want to study this space since it's so fluctuating with so many actors and studying the ecosystem becomes difficult. Is there something uh, that... It also,
1: if I can add, you make a distinction between quantitative and qualitative methods and how quantitative methods have taken, uh, like uh, they are in fashion, like uh, sentiment analysis, but you, have, you prefer qualitative methods or uh, we prefer a mix of both uh,
2: Yes okay, so these are great questions so I'll start by saying like, I, I just was pulling this book off my shelf It's propaganda by jacques Allure. Jacques loup's propaganda um, so you can't really read it because it's backwards but um, this book has really informed the way that I think about studying these problems Jacques was, you know was writing in the 60s uh, 70s after World War two and sort of as a response to some of the early uh, uh, Philosophers and social scientists working on propaganda, um, in the, in the 20th century. So Lippmann, Laswell, Lazarsfeld, um, lots of these kinds of people. And, and the general argument here that Will makes is in order to understand propaganda, you have to go into the field because propaganda does not exist in a vacuum. The minute you attempt to isolate propaganda and ex, and do an experiment in a lab, it no longer is propaganda because propaganda exists with all kinds of sociocultural implications, and it is very much, as we say, in situ. Like so what that means is that is that propaganda, you have to see propaganda happening in a particular place against a particular group of people with particular messaging in order to really understand it very, very well. And so a whole thing is in order to understand propaganda, don't turn to experimental work. Turn to the people who build it and make it. Turn to the, turn, turn to the supply side of this. Talk to propagandists. Um, and, and so I've taken that to heart. I do think studying... Sorry, sorry, studying demand is valuable. I think studying demand is valuable. There's been a lot of research looking at what kind of content people intake and, and why they intake it. I do think though, it tends to uh, oversimplify and uh what's going on. And it, it lacks in a lot of nuance, sociocultural nuance. And and I do think that there's a, a fetishization of big data and the ability of big data and network analysis to help us to understand this problem. Oftentimes, however, it's 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 separated from sociocultural value, it's separated from the psych, you know, this underlying psychology of particular groups. And so in order to really understand what's happening, I think we have to do mixed methods research, but I also really, really think qualitative research is important in this space. And I'll tell you why for another reason in a second. Um, mixed methods research allows us to, yes, get the breadth that quali- big data offers us to, to go broad, to analyze lots of people from lots of different groups and to, and to harness computation. But paired with qualitative research, it goes much more in depth, and it gives us much more nuance. And so we can drill down on specific streams of data, speak to people to verify what we're seeing. Um, and you can use... You can do quantitative first, or you can do qualitative first. And in fact, at my propaganda lab at University of Texas now, Joe Luquito, who's a scholar from University of Wisconsin, uh, who's just come to join us on the faculty at University of Texas, is a computational quantitative... Uh, disinformation propaganda scholar, and she and I are bit working to build a mixed methods lab, and this is our whole our whole goal is to is to combine quantitative with qualitative. There's another reason why I am an advocate for qualitative work, and it's not again, it's not because I hate computation or quantitative work. I think it's really important, but qualitative work is also really useful to study platforms like WhatsApp, um, you know, in India. It's very, very difficult to to study the kinds of conversations that happen through qual- quantitative data, because we simply don't have access to the quantitative data. Um, by the nature of an encrypted application, the that happen there are private. Sure, there are a, a that people do scrape and we are able to get some kind of ad hoc piecemeal data here and there sometimes. And we've seen other people use these various methods to go into chat rooms, and uh, join as many as they can, and take that information and then use it. But there's lots of... But first of all, what we're getting there is a, a portion of the conversation. Second of all, and perhaps more importantly, there's serious ethical implications for doing those sort that sort of research. Um, it's not to say that there isn't ethical implications with doing the sort of research that I do. It is challenging. And it's really hard to talk to propagandists. And there, I've been in some unsafe situations because many of them work for governments. Uh, but what I learn is about intention. What I learn is about strategy. What I learn is about their goals. Um, we have to pair that with what we know about what happens. But the behavioral effects that we see, uh, coming from propaganda or disinformation online oftentimes are clear or direct. So um, there's been an attempt by a lot of people to information propaganda online. Uh, they don't always... We don't know even what they do. And that's just that's just the silliest argument I could think of making. Because what it is suggesting is that we need to be studying primary effects. So what we need to know is, that, did this, infor- this disinformation make someone change their vote? And first of all, oftentimes propagandists tell you the goal is not to change the vote. The goal is just to confuse people or make them apathetic. Second of all, it's second order, third order effects, uh, very indirect effects that are happening that are really difficult to measure quantitatively that are that are that that we see occurring. And so we've got to bring in some form of qualitative insight to understand this. An interview is a very, very good one. Um, how to do this at scale remains a challenge. But by doing mixed methods, I think we can.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, we have talked about the new technologies and we have talked about your research. I think... Uh, should now talk about social media companies and uh, you are not of the camp which says uh, break them up, uh, <laughs> just uh, divide them, antitrust, trust bring in anti-trust legislations, uh, you do not subscribe to that view and uh, also when uh, uh, we think about harm that is being done due to misinformation, disinformation. Uh, on these social media websites, uh, what is the nature of this harm? And is it a collective harm and individual harm? And who will address it? Uh, you talk about uh, election commissions taking up, uh, uh, classifying uh, uh, campaign finances and uh, watching uh, who sponsors ads on these platforms. So who will uh, uh, who will ensure fair play? I think my question is about uh, the size of these social media companies and the harm that misinformation, disinformation does, and how to ensure fair play and ensure that voter behavior is not uh, manipulated in this way.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, it's not it's not that I don't believe that Facebook or Google are monopolies. I do believe that Facebook and Google are monopolies. You can't really make that argument and have a leg to stand on, as they say. Um, what, what What I'm afraid of is that antitrust lawsuits and attempts to break up these companies will allow them to divest themselves of responsibility for the things that they've done. And so, what I say, what it's, what I say is like, if, if we're going to break them up, and I think there's a sense, a very sensible antitrust conversation to be had here, and we should be pursuing that conversation. But if we're going to break them up, before we do so, we have to hold them liable for the things that have happened. Um, I've written, I wrote an article, uh, a while back in Wired, uh, sort of a provocation piece in Wired, where I said, uh, what would it look like to make them put billions of dollars the social media companies billions of dollars into a trust for uh, news agencies around the world to help them rebuild and revamp themselves because social media companies have contributed very, very real harms to the news media industry. You know wh- What we see happening right now in Australia is a very good example of a situation in which Australia has attempted to force the social media companies to pay for the news content that they prioritize and that they benefit from very much uh and you've seen the social media companies in Australia Facebook in particular actually ban for, for a brief period all news content in Australia it's an absolutely insane on their platform yeah. and so uh and so that's my position when it comes to the uh when it comes to the the size of these companies and how we deal with breaking them up I think it's inevitable that we will see antitrust lawsuits happen. Facebook owns WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, Messenger, Facebook, and a number of other uh, entities that support these platforms, and that's that's going to change. Google, you know, you could rattle off so many companies that Google Alphabet itself owns at this stage. Um, The second question is about harms and. Uh, part of the problem with harms at the moment is scale, so uh, you know it 's very difficult to see harms um, particularly in countries say for instance like Myanmar, where we have an ongoing uh, ongoing civil strife within the country uh, where we 've had uh, what 's happened on social media manipulation on behalf of the military lead to death lead to murdering of particular uh, groups of people, uh, the Rohingya um, and it's hidden in many ways. these harms are, have been hidden from the West because the West doesn't really in, engage. they're quite myopic. They don't like to engage in, in analysis of content uh, or of things that are happening in other countries. It's, it's almost oftentimes not until months or years later that we suddenly see people at Facebook, you know in their offices in, in, in uh, California in Menlo Park, say, "Oh." <laughs> What we did was quite bad. And we launched this platform in many, many different languages. And we didn't think about the fact that we couldn't just monitor the problems that were happening in English. And so this speaks to the harms like in a broader sense. I think right now, one of the major problems that we have is we see action happening in terms of Facebook stopping problematic content in English or or YouTube or Twitter doing similar things and not doing a whole lot in a lot of other languages. There's a prioritization of, say, maybe under 10 languages, English, Spanish, French being some of the main ones, uh, Mandarin, not really as much because of the nature of China and the internet there. Um, but, you know, think about it, you know, obviously, it's it's not a stretch for all of you to think about a country like India, where many languages are spoken and and ask yourself this question, right? Like, how do you actually get your arms around the problem and address the harms that exist when you're not even searching in for content is... And also, when, when what's happening is oftentimes happening in an encrypted system, and you have Facebook moving towards encryption, right? Remember, Facebook is trying to integrate all of their systems to be encrypted now. And this is, this is an attempt, yes, in some ways to protect users and to allow for more privacy and to integrate their platforms. It's also an attempt to obscure the fact that disinformation and propaganda are a massive problem. And just because they're hidden doesn't mean they don't exist. And so, what I'll say finally is that in terms of specific harms, in terms of the things we should be looking for, um, there's two kind of categories that I think about. One is violent content. Uh, violent content uh, is is a big, big problem um, that we have to stop. Right? You cannot, uh, you know, in the U.S. even where people are obsessed with free speech, you cannot uh, you cannot threaten bodily harm to people uh, if it's actionable. Right, uh, against the law. It's again if it's against the law. So there's there's specific laws out there that say you know context matters, right? Like, but around the world we can we can actually work to prevent violent content or incitement to violence. The second thing, uh, and I'm actually going to say there's three now. The second thing is three things that we need to think about. The second thing that we have to think about is electoral related disinformation. So disinformation about how, when, or where to vote that is attempting to manipulate the actual democratic process. We saw a lot of this happening in the United States in the 2020 election, and it was a huge problem. I mean, it's ongoing. We had, a, we had a insurrection for Christ's sakes. like We had people invading the Capitol because of, in some ways, it had to be related to the social media content that was flowing related to the falsehoods related to the election. And it's happened all over the world, not just in the United States. And the third thing is that we have to protect marginalized populations. Uh, we have to protect people who exist uh, on the margins of society because they are oftentimes um, the most targeted. We also have to work to protect women, because women are oftentimes massive targets of harassment, particularly women, female journalists, um, and think more about the ways in which uh, in which minority groups are often um, are oftentimes the biggest targets and the most vulnerable targets to this kind of, of content, um, not just to, not just violent content or coercion or manipulation about a, a particular election, but also um, but also with with threats and all kinds of other sorts of problematic information that we we've really got to curb. Whatever ends up resulting in is a spiral of silence, right? You know, like those people no longer have yeah, a position right. to speak in democracy.
1: Well, um, I have a lot of questions left and haven't even talked about the conclusion, which is a big chapter in itself. Let's have some questions. Mandira, do you want to ask some questions?
0: Uh, yeah, so we have a few set of interesting questions in the chat window. Uh, so Dr. Nupur Chaudhary asks, is there any market incentive to build democratic promoting bots for the private sector other than philanthropy? And that will always be a limited scale. Is hard regulation the only way out? And are companies at all interested in regulating something that generates such immense profit? What are your thoughts on the movement towards design justice?
1: Yeah, lots of fantastic
2: thoughts here. Um, I think that there has got to be some hard regulation. I think we've gotten to a place now where, uh, you know, uh, attempting to to say that we can proceed without any kind of regulation is basically a nonstarter. And I say this as someone who, when I was working at Oxford, you know i i i, I was much more in, in favor of light regulation, light handed regulation. But over the course of time, I've just you know spending time in Washington D.C. and in London and in other places, uh, capitals around the world, where we see pe- these conversations happening, um, I've come to the conclusion that we've got to see some hard regulation. Uh, will the social media companies accept it? I don't know. That's a good question. I read The Economist every week. And one of the things I see in The Economist is full page ads from Facebook nearly every week these days that say, we are in favor of regulation, basically. Uh, and so yes, I think it's a marketing tactic on one side, on the one side. Um, on the other side, I think it is, uh, you know, there is a real desire from these companies to actually have a bit of help because it's, because they're they're hemorrhaging profit in a way in in a way that we can't see, and that's in the in in their popularity, in what people think about them. Yes, they're still very profitable. Yes, they're still making a lot of money, but they're becoming less and less popular, particularly with young people. When we talk about a platform like Facebook, and so the big question here is is can they continue to sustain the kinds of of image to their public image that they've that they've sustained? And I think the answer is no. Also, I think that they're just sort of at a loss for what to do with a lot of the problems that exist. And in particularly in the United States, but also in other countries, when it comes to free speech, it's such a problem, problematic issue. Like it's so dicey to deal with. And the platforms are. You know, for a long time, you had them saying, "We're not the arbiters of truth. We, we just give information to people." They wanted to present themselves as like an AT and T or like a uh, you know a, a telecoms carrier that that was benignly giving information to people. What we've realized is that's not the case at all. Obviously, their algorithms curate and supply people with particular kinds of information. They get to decide what kind of news we see, when we see it, and how we see it. And that in and of it matters a lot, especially in an era where we know a lot of people get their news and information from Facebook or from YouTube. Um, in terms of you know, the question about design justice, I think that there's a lot of great thoughts and, 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 and thinkers there. You know, I mentioned Safia Noble. I, I, there's, there's, there's many others around the world who are doing work on this issue. Um, Kate Crawford when it comes to ai is is another fantastic thinker um like gosh i could i could list them all day i i think there's a lot there's a lot to be said here and i think that there's actually quite a bit of pickup with these ideas in silicon valley in fact when i was there uh you know a couple of years back for for a bit of time running a lab in palo alto what i found was that um uh, many of these companies were sending people over to try to talk to people like me and others at Stanford and Berkeley to have these conversations because they wanted to understand what design justice was about and how they could build systems that were more oriented towards human rights and democracy rather than building these other systems. And that included not just companies, it included venture capitalists. It included incubators uh, that have a a ton of power and names but suffice to say that we had conversations and continue to have conversations with some of the biggest names in the business at least in the united states whether okay, or not that will turn into anything is another question yeah
1: <laughs> yeah let's move towards the conclusion and you've been very kind with the time that you've given us yes. considering the situation over there mm-hmm. and we will as We'll talk about the conclusion a little, and then we'll take a few questions, if time permits, however much time Dr. Woolley has. Um, in the conclusion of, of the book, he says, uh, Digital information landscape is vast, and it extends beyond our current ability to track or contain it effectively. And these few terms that you use throughout the book, uh, two of those, Anonymity and automation figure uh, very heavily in this chapter and other chapters as well. And also, you talk about uh, the constantly uh, generating uh, amounts of data. And you you uh, think that there are uh, a few short-term strategies and then long-term and uh, solutions uh, and long-term and medium-term solutions. The short-term solutions are. They are technologically driven and they are not very effective. So can you uh, talk about uh, these solutions that you list out and focus a little more on the medium and long term solutions that you offer? And especially when it comes comes to digital literacy and uh, more importantly, when it comes to the gap that is there between Silicon Valley uh, techies and researchers like you.
2: Yeah. um, So the short term solutions tend to be user based fixes. So there's been a real desire in Silicon Valley, in particular, um, not just at the companies, but also at Stanford and and other elite institutions that kind of support Silicon Valley. towards saying, this is a user problem. And because it's a user problem, let's put it back upon the users and let them... Let's figure out a crowdsource method of dealing with this. Let's, let's let users tag content. Let's pair up with the Associated Press and fact check people. Um, let's let us build up a, a browser plugin that allows people to detect bots or to detect fake fake news um, or create create some kind of app that allows people to do it on their own. And I, and I say that this is a divestment of responsibility. I do. I think that you know some of these things can be effective, but they're very ephemeral. So if you build an app, or if you build a patch, or if you build a, a plugin, um, it's oftentimes that six months later that they no longer are very viable, unless they're constantly updated, unless there's constant money behind them, and oftentimes this is not the case uh, that we see beneficence like this kind of goal of of. Giving a bit of money towards doing something that's right—that's a user based fix—that uh, that then just sort of like stops after a few months. Um, uh, and so, because of the nature of the internet, those user based fixes and the technologically based fixes that I'm talking about—so like apps or, or plugins or browser extensions—they tend to be quite short-term fixes because they're they're oftentimes focused on isolated aspects of the problem. Medium-term fixes uh, to the issue, you know, are more akin to the overhaul of technological systems. So, actually, building new social media systems. Again, like the provocation is like, what does it look like to build a social media system with human rights in mind? And what I talk about in the book is. What I'm hopeful for is that because of consumer demand, you know, if we were going to continue to like think about this in a marketplace way, because of consumer demand, that if a social media firm does build an, an application that is built with human rights and democracy in mind, that it might be very, very popular with people just because it's more, it's, it's, it's more humane and it's more trustworthy. And so with the, some of the arguments that I've made to, and I've shown through data to the social media companies uh, are that. This is actually a sensible financial decision for you to begin doing this because yes, you can continue with advertising still if you think about it very carefully and do it carefully. But yeah, the medium term solutions tend to be rebuilding the systems, thinking about the ways in which we can uh, implement uh, uh, aspects of design justice in the systems. And the long term solutions are social, really because this is a socio-technical problem. We tend to think about this as technologically deterministic. And to some extent, the subtitle of my book comes across as technologically deterministic, uh, You know, saying how the next wave of technology will break the truth. But to me, it's a provocation. And it's a provocation to say to people, Hey, listen, um, here's how the next wave of technology will break the truth, but please prove me wrong. Because if you prove me wrong, then I will have done my job and I'll feel really, really happy. Um, and the subtitle for the English edition is "What we can do about it, and what we can do about it in the long term is that we can uh, we can build better educational systems. We have to ask ourselves: What are we training our students to optimize for? <laughs> you know, let's use Silicon Valley language, right? What are we training our students to optimize for in schools? Are we training them to memorize and then forget? Are we training them to be really good at taking particular tests, or are we training them to be really good critical thinkers? And it's the case in the United States that oftentimes we don't have students that come to us that have heard even of critical thinking or that have a notion of what critical thinking is until they get to the university level. And that's a huge problem. That's a really, really big problem because what it means is that while people are developing their political identities, they're very susceptible to this. And then as they continue throughout their whole life, as they they develop into adulthood and have children and buy a house, that they are continually susceptible because they've never had this foundation or this groundwork. And so this is a generational thing that we have to do, right? Like, um, that's the truth is a very vulnerable thing. It's a lot less popular to think about scientific, scientific facts, to think about empiricism, uh, to think about verifiable information, um, than it is to think about conspiracy and fancy and falsehoods. Uh, and so we've got to train people from a young age to, to be keener thinkers about these sorts of things. It's not to say that we have to take all joy out of life. Like I'm a huge fan of fiction. I'm a huge fan of fantasy and sci-fi. Like I want to see those things be, have a part in our life. And I don't want us to overcorrect to the extent that we suddenly look like a society that doesn't accept any degree of, of fancy. But we, we have to be better about building good education systems. And the United States is, is. I I would say in the middle of, of that problem because the United States is where Silicon Valley is. It's where many of these Facebook, Google, Twitter, Reddit, and it also has a fairly, I think, poor educational system at this stage. Sure. Harvard, Harvard is here and Princeton is here, but like our public education is, 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 has a, has a hard time. Mandira, if I may, I see, um, I see Paroma, yeah. Paroma Rai's question about can you talk about some of the tactics used to get interviews um, with supply side sure. actors? And I think that's an interesting question uh, and something that comes up a lot. But one of the things I've found is that, um, is that it's a big challenge to find people to talk to you in your own country. Uh, because they are very skeptical of you because they think that you know more about the politics and the political situation there. And so it oftentimes takes me a lot longer and it involves a lot more work for me to get to talk to people in the United States because people in the United States are very wary of us. They think that we're liberal academics, that we're Democrats, uh, or, you know, or, or that we're going to do something bad. And so. Uh, the tactics that we've used there have been oftentimes to go to the middle, the middlemen, as it were. So the consultants, political consultants who love to brag, the mercenaries to work for the political campaigns, because oftentimes the political campaigns aren't doing this work on their own. They're hiring people to do it. So we go to them. That's one of the biggest things we do. And we look for ex-employees oftentimes of these firms. So we go on LinkedIn, and we do a lot of open source intelligence work to find people that have been fired or that have some reason to talk to us. And of course, that means that sometimes the data might have problems, and we have to think about all of that. The other thing I will say, though, is that comparatively, I found it very easy to get people in India or people in Mexico to talk to us and it's just because i think culturally we're in a different place and they don't think that we have a vested interest in indian politics we don't care about the bjp or we don't care about what the pri in mexico is doing and mm-hmm. so in india we've we've found it very much possible through just looking one of the first things that we always do uh in my project is if we look at a new pro- a new country And this is something that comes from the Computational Propaganda Project at Oxford. As we look at lots and lots of regional newspapers, and we look at all the stories about people who are working with political campaigns, and we we code them and categorize them using content analysis. And then we say, here's all the people we need to reach out to that have been in these news stories, because the journalists have already, already done a lot of this work. And so a lot of the IT yodas in India, uh, who we've reached out to, have have reached back out to us and and have offered to talk to us. And it's crazy. And we've not only had one conversation with them, we've had many conversations with them. And they're very proud of the work that they do. They think that it's very good work. They think that it's very important work. And they're even willing to admit to us when they're using automation and when they're doing those things because they believe in the politics of the situation. Um, So I'd say endeavoring to do comparative research where you're looking at multiple countries can help you in this circumstance. Um, another thing that we've done in the past is subscribe to as many channels where we you know conversations about this kind of stuff are going on uh, on Reddit, on Black Hat World, on 4chan and 8chan, and just track conversations and, and find information on people who are doing this and reach out to them. And the surprising thing I find is that when you reach out to them, many of much of the time they're willing to talk.
1: Uh, there's a question from Annie who says, uh, how do you feel social media platforms will evolve? Uh, while Facebook still remains popular, many are migrating to platforms that seem to provide more privacy. Can this pave a way for better internet spaces? And I want to ask a question to what you just said, which, uh, which is about uh, proprietary data that uh, companies like facebook google artific uh, they they are not willing to share this data you mentioned in the book that they have started but it's very late and very few uh, before uh, in you know it's too late by then and so what do you have to say about that uh, from a research perspective and this question about uh, privacy and better yeah
2: Both fantastic questions. So Annie's question is great because what we see is a movement towards encrypted messaging applications, uh, towards the WhatsApp, uh, Signal, RAM, um, all of these kinds of applications that offer a private space. um, And that's both a blessing and a curse. right? Uh, my, my biggest project that I have right now, uh, in terms of both funding, but also in terms of our research focus is, is on in, these encrypted spaces and the ways in which disinformation and propaganda are moving to them. So unsurprisingly, we have been focusing a great deal on India. We've been focusing a great deal on Brazil. Um, and, uh, what we found is that, you know, just because people go towards encryption does not mean that they are not susceptible to disinformation or propaganda. In fact, in some ways, they're more susceptible because they exist in smaller networks and various propagandist groups, not names, have figured out the fact that relational organizing specifically is a very, very potent tool. And what I mean by relational organizing is that when you are in a WhatsApp group of 200 or so people, you know many of them that they are people that you trust and that those trusted connections can be manipulated in a very, very subtle way. And so remember, disinformation often turns in, turns into misinformation. So the people that pr- proliferate the purposeful, fake, false stories are attempting to get your grandmother, your sister, your brother, your cousin, your friend, your coworker to see the story and spread it to you. And when that network effect happens, and you see it spread in an encrypted network through smaller and smaller communities with more and more close connections, you see a greater effect. You actually see people trusting the people that are sharing the content with them, and that that leads to more more problems. And so, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say that is quite scary, and it is a problem that we have to deal with. But there are things that we can do in these spaces to prevent these this kind of manipulation. We see WhatsApp impose forwarding limits, which you know maybe this this is good. It's it's you know it's had some returns. Um, some of these some of the aspects of like using metadata, like meta meta, is actually beneficial for us. The other thing that I would say is that uh, oftentimes, the movement from the encrypted spaces into mainstream spaces is where the news media picks up the content and begins spreading false content. And so we have to catch people as they leave WhatsApp and go to Facebook or go to YouTube or go to Twitter, because that's when they begin to target journalists a lot of the time. And that's when journalists do what we call network propaganda, what Bankler et al. call network propaganda, where they're trying to... They're looking beyond just social media and trying to get a broader uptick. Um, and then as to the other question, uh, or, sorry, remind me what the other question was? <laughs> it was
1: about proprietary datasets.
2: Ah, yes. So um, one of the biggest way, things that we need as researchers in order to understand what's happening on these platforms, particularly from a quantitative standpoint, but also from a qualitative standpoint is data is data from these companies. And right now it is completely within the company's hands to, and they make all of the decisions about whether or not they give us the data. Facebook owns CrowdTangle, which is the, 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 uh, the apparatus, technological apparatus through which you can get data from Facebook or Instagram. And they make decisions about what you can and can't get. It's time-stamped. It's date-stamped. You can't go back to 2016 and get all the juicy stuff from the 2016 US election, for instance. Um, and so we've got to figure out how to get these platforms to play ball more. And maybe this requires regulation, some kind of quasi-governmental panel in the United States at least. Um, but we've got to think more about how to get them to share this this content. Uh, and also how to do this in a way that's not just platform to platform, but that's more collaborative because we know that disinformation and propaganda are, uh, are trans platform issues that they don't just stay on Facebook, they don't just stay on WhatsApp, they go from one to the other to the other. And we see so little collaboration between these companies, particularly when it comes to data sharing.
0: Okay, I think we just take one more question. Um, so Pranav's question, how does the splintering of multiple platforms performing same function affect how we perceive information? For instance, the Twitter coup debate. Aren't people preferring one platform over the other creating e- creating an echo chamber? Or within networks itself, there are echo chambers that foster information as disinformation, vice versa? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think this really speaks to um to the fact that. That, that, that there's a, you know, to use a kind of an outdated term, there's a balkanization, there's a fragmenting or a fracturing of the ways in which we approach, of which the platforms approach to dealing with this problem. And so um, what this does is that different, there's a sort of, <laughs> You, you will see different approach by Google, a different approach by Facebook, a different approach by Twitter. And what this results in is a very uneven informational landscape. And it, it, there's, it makes for a lot of confusion. It makes for a lot a lack of clarity about what you're seeing and how without knowing what is censored or what is kept out of the conversation. You know, you can't really have a particularly good view of, of, of what, what you're getting and how. And so I think it changes our perception of information in a lot of different ways it, it, because it and it not only does it It change what we're actually seeing on particular platforms um, and make it very uneven uh, and fragmented. But it also challenges our trust in particular systems because we don't think that there's equality across all of the platforms and that we know that there's not much of a conversation going on between them. And that's a huge problem. We've got to know... We've got to have more clarity. We've got to... We've got this... This has got to be more systematic this is there's got to be more of a plan here more of a recipe and more collaboration between these platforms perhaps mandated in some way by government in order to make it clear like what it is that we're getting so that our information ecosystem is uh, a bit more approachable rather than so noisy so chaotic so problematic because a big part of the problem at the moment is that the information landscape is so chaotic it's so it's so challenging um and you know the the uh the concept of echo chambers was mentioned. Um, yeah, you know, like on particular platforms, echo chambers, uh, echo chambers certainly uh, occur. Uh, on others, they might not occur as much, and it all comes down to questions of design, but also a lot of the code that that gets used to to create the algorithms that push people into particular groups are proprietary. And so we're not seeing a lot of sharing about how you make decisions about how to make, make a more egalitarian uh, space or a space that might benefit, say, from collective intelligence in decision-making processes, uh, rather than, than just benefiting from homophily and people all all going to the, the folks that they know, birds of a feather flock together. right? Um, uh, so yeah, I think that answers the question. Um, thank you. This has been really, really fun. Uh, and th- and yeah, thank you both yeah, very much, uh, Prabhat and Mandira, uh, for doing this, and thank you for your patience uh, with me being very late to this. I, I really apologize, but it's been very fun and very very good questions.
1: Thank you, thank thank you for such nice. Uh, views that you've shared with us thank you for not cancelling it and thank you for making (laughs) it despite the situation over there we would love to have you again we have so many notes that we have not gone through so hope to see you again and stay safe thank you so much thank you so much thank you
2: of course take care have a great day Bye. bye bye